0: uh, reappointed uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell, and but also uh, elevated uh, Leo Briner to Vice Chair of the Fed. But there's still some other openings there at the Fed. Let's get a, a lay of the land there on all things Fed. We can do that with Caleb Nygaard, Senior Research Associate at the Yale Program on Financial Stability. Previously worked in Statistics Division at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, so knows a thing or two about the Fed. Caleb, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, President Biden did not. Announced a full slate of Fed nominees yesterday. Why do you think we don't have everything filled here?
1: Yeah, it's, it's great to be with you. Um, it President Biden kind of operates on this definition of Fed independence that uh, that is basically that he doesn't comment on specific actions that the central bank takes. So he really has one big shot to send a message to the Fed, uh, to Congress, to financial markets, and to the broader public in general about what he thinks about the Fed. And, you know, I think he, he missed his opportunity uh, yesterday uh, by only filling two of the seats, um, two of the positions. He could have filled three others. Uh, there's the open seat from that Trump tried to fill with Judy Shelton. Quarles is gone, and that seat's going to need to be filled. And uh, Clarida is, is leaving, so that seat needs to be filled. I mean, just imagine how powerful it would have been uh, for Biden to kind of walk up to that mic yesterday, flanked not just by uh, the Fed's number one and number two, but the Fed's top five, and kind of the message that would have sent about what Biden thinks, uh, who the Fed is, what their job is, what their priorities are, and you know who they represent, and not just skin color and gender, but uh, also economic background. I, I think he missed that opportunity because uh, there are three; those three seats, he says he's going to fill them in early December, but between the debt ceiling and the holidays, I just don't think that message is going to get through this to the same degree that it would have.
2: And why not? I mean, why not come out and make these decisions sooner rather than later? We've had plenty of time to debate, to have an open conversation about, especially with the vice chair of supervision, that all important seat. Why leave it open for so long?
1: Yeah, that's right. And I don't, think that uh, you know, I think this is a a messaging uh, issue. I'm not one of those that believe that uh, a month or two, of, of one of these seats uh, for the job itself is going to make a huge difference in the medium, and especially not in the long term. Uh, but what it does is it shows what it has kind of showed for the Fed chair race, which is that President Biden is just not considers just doesn't consider the Fed to be a priority. And maybe it's political concerns about uh, distracting the, the the different wings of the of the Democrat uh, Democratic senators. Uh, but I but I think the the concern is real that, that this is just showing that Biden just doesn't view it as a priority.
0: So, Caleb, a lot of the progressives, uh, particularly uh, Elizabeth Warren, were, came out against reappointing Fed Chairman Jay Powell. What do you think the, the political calculus was for the president in, in, in the announcement he did make?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I I think this was a, a big loss by the the progressive movement. You know, over the last couple of years, they've proven themselves quite adept at picking battles that they that they think they're probably going to lose. Uh, but in the process, they can shift the window, expand the potential, you know, kind of win this war of ideas. Uh, and this time, the, the progressives just didn't really bring their, their A game to this. They had never named an alternative. You know, Warren's dangerous man kind of qu- comment was appeared to be off the cuff and didn't have a big follow-up the squad from the House, uh, their letter to, to, uh, that was released over the summer. You know, they had some shallow issue things, concerns that they were bringing up, but they didn't name any names. They didn't even have a short list. Uh, and they didn't really coalesce uh, around what it exactly is that they wanted uh, from the Fed.
2: What do you want to see then, particularly when it comes to the vice chair for supervision as you mentioned before, Biden has talked a lot about gender and race uh, diversity and inclusion as well. What are some of the qualifications of the people that you've seen floated around?
1: Yeah, so the, that diversity in in both uh, both gender, race, and then and then background is really important. You know, I'll, I'll throw up at the top that uh, in the law, the Federal Reserve Act itself, uh, it says that that these the leadership should uh, include various sectors of the economy, and it explicitly includes labor. And, and, you know, we've never had a a member of the Federal Open Market Committee, so either from a Reserve Bank president or one of the governors, uh, that came from a background of, of organized labor. We've had labor economists. But we've not had someone from the actual movement. And so that would be something for one of the three seats uh, that right. I, would, I would be interested in seeing. And then there are others on the on the actual supervision stuff. We want to see somebody that has uh, experience in that matter, that has a track record of, of, of having having views. Um, and there, there are a few people on the list that just don't really have much uh, uh, supervisory experience uh, or public messaging right. about that. And so that's what I, that's one of the things I'd want to see.
0: All right, Caleb, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Caleb Nygaard, Senior Research Associate for the Yale Program on Financial Stability, part of the Yale School of Management. I want to bring on Jim Sciarico. He's the president and CEO of Avaya Holdings, uh, symbol A-V-Y-A. Uh, but we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, let's check in with Kriti Gupta and get some small cap stocks. That's coming up right now
3: yeah paul the russell 2000 down 1.2 percent underperforming the broader market a move that looks a lot like tech but under the hood you are seeing a little bit of a mixed picture jack in the box shares down six percent ticker j-a-c-k after the fast food chain reported same store sales that missed expectations and restaurant margin declines driven by higher costs and higher wages kind of a theme word we've been hearing lately abercrombie and fish is another one ticker a-n-f those shares down 16 percent the most intraday since March of 2020, once again, hitting those supply chain issues. You also have Urban Outfitters down 14%. Those third quarter results mixed. Uh, they did beat those expectations. The outlook was encouraging. But once again, supply chain disruptions and pressure from higher costs weighing on that stock. To the upside, though, because we got to have some good news in there. American Eagle shares up five percent ticker aeo also reporting better than expected earnings this time on strong in-store sales ahead of the holidays and lastly dycom industries ticker dy shares up 15 percent after the infrastructure company whose sales turned positive for the first time in a year and ebitda margins also stabilized uh thanks to a client uh, or some improvement with the client that bloomberg intelligence expects is verizon Oh.
0: interesting interesting all right kriti Gupta thank you so much uh, we appreciate getting that small cap report uh, look at one of these small caps avaya Holdings uh the stock was up what uh, had a nice move yesterday from 18 to 22 uh, pulling back about 6.6 percent today Jim shiriko president and CEO of Avaya joins us here Jim thanks so much for joining us here uh, avaya again a technology communications company that offers collaboration and communication tools for businesses talk to us about your business, Jim, we're seeing Zoom technologies trade off a lot today. And a lot of this, the companies that had benefited from some of the uh, work-from-home issues uh, getting a little bit uh, under pressure here. Talk to us about your company and what you're seeing in your business.
4: Yeah, hi. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, for a value look, we had our uh, fourth quarter fiscal year results yesterday. It was a strong year uh, on many fronts. We exceeded the street ex- expectations across the board. Um, And we've really been focusing on on delivering a a three-pillar value creation uh, strategy. First is growth. We've had six consecutive quarters of year on year growth. We reversed more than a decade of revenue declines by being up uh, roughly $100 million to very close to $3 billion of revenue for the year. Um, We have moved to a a uh, cloud-first company. Uh, Our uh, annual recurring revenues finished up. Uh, roughly 177% year-on-year. So we're seeing strength uh, across the board. We operate in 190 countries. We have more than 100,000 customers, and we've been investing significantly and really focusing on reshaping of I to a cloud company and a real leader in large enterprise communication and collaboration.
2: You know, it's interesting. We heard from uh, Zoom as well yesterday and they really in their press release were highlighting how they have to be wherever some of these large enterprise companies are. So if it's a hybrid work environment, if it's fully work from home, if it's all return to office, they're having to you know, sort, sort of tackle all of that. How are you thinking about finding a customer where they are, even if it's at work from home, even if it's 100% in office?
4: Yeah, if you take a look at our overall solutions, in fact, we're purpose-built for exactly that. Um, We are a portfolio company. In fact, we're the only portfolio company that offers uh, solutions that cover both the unified communication space as well as the contact center space. And we provide solutions, uh, whether it's hybrid, whether it's private and or public. Um, many of our com- competitors really offer may- basically one or maybe two of those solutions, but we're a complete portfolio company and in fact, really focusing on from our point of view, how people communicate and collaborate, uh, whether it's uh, you know work at home or from, from the office, because we view that uh, work has been significantly disrupted. It won't go back to where it once was, and these disruptions provide us an opportunity to grow. Uh, really uh, predicated on the fact that our aligned platform enables enables business to really have that customer as well as employee experience and and that's a real differentiator in today's market
0: so Jim you know you guys have a just a fantastic vantage point talking you know working with your clients how do you think the future of work will be will it be a hybrid is that kind of the new norm now for uh, corporations
4: You know, it it really is. You know, we, as I said, we we deal with, you know, uh, the largest of large enterprises down to uh, the SMB marketplace. And no matter what vertical you look across, be it healthcare or banking or government, um, we're seeing that the workforce will be um, really more of a hybrid uh, environment as as we see it out through, uh, you know, the foreseeable future. And what that means is that businesses today need more flexibility in how they use technology how they can create this purposeful and consistent experience, and that's um, you know that's a huge opportunity for us because we um, we provide that platform, we provide the end to end solutions you know we've been running mission critical applications for the our number of customers for 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 many many years right and and the challenge is pretty clear, and that's to eliminate these departmental silos. Uh, and really eliminate friction on how businesses conduct commerce, and and, and we're excited about the opportunity for the company.
0: Hey, Jim, thanks so much for for taking some time here. We really appreciate uh, getting your thoughts here. It's really the future... Of business and working, and as Jim was just mentioning, it kind of feels like a hybrid is here to stay. Jim Shriko, president and CEO of Avaya, symbol A V Y A. The stock is up about eight uh, percent year to date. Had a big, big move up yesterday on the earnings, eighteen to twenty-two. Pulling back about six percent today, uh, but a big move there. And we appreciate Jim taking the time.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Taylor, you're looking at the Nasdaq here today. It's off one percent. We've kind of got the S&P flattish, mm-hmm. uh, but the Nasdaq off, you know, a little more than one percent. We've got the, you know, looking at the rates rising a, a little bit here. Mm-hmm. It could be a little bit of a challenge.
2: Well, and I think we're going to pull in Kriti Gupta back in here because you had a big sort of. You know, it was so interesting, Paul. Yesterday we stood here and early in the morning we got the Fed announcement. It sort of yep. seemed to be this clarity rally, big relief rally. But then you had a decline of 1.3% on the NASDAQ by the end of the session. And then you wake up today and you're off again another 1%. And one key metric I'm looking at is the number of stocks in the NASDAQ that are making 52-week lows. It's okay. now up to 525.
0: Really? Okay. New
2: stocks. It was 425 three days ago. Ah, So that's sort of giving you an indication when you think about breadth and the magnitude. And again, a 1% sell off is is nothing in the scheme of things, but underneath the surface, there seems to be something going on. And that is the highest now since March of 2020. When you think about the number of stocks that are making fresh 52 week lows. So just some really interesting dynamics. And, you know, again, with yields rising, you do, as you know, better than anyone talk about that discount rate and cash flows. And then you've had a lot of push pull with this COVID narrative though as you and i've been talking about hard to talk about cases it's better to be talking about deaths and hospitalizations when you think about uh sort of these stay-at-home trades all over again
0: yeah exactly and you you think about the nasdaq and some of these tech names it kind of goes to that you know push and pull we've had in this market really since the beginning of the pandemic where do you want to be in some of those traditional growth stories that have worked so well for? really since a financial crisis back in 2008? Or do you really make that cyclical play, that reopening play on, you know, whether it's, you know, some of the energy names or the, the financials, or even some of the small cap names. So there's that push and pull there that we see in this market. Um, and we see kind of waves where tech does well. And then again, some of the more cyclical names do well.
2: Yeah, let's do all of this more with Kriti Gupta, who we've swooped in here and pretty, <laughs> you know, again, we don't want to make too much of a 1% here, 1% there, but, It was the price action at the end of the day yesterday and sort of this continued uh, uh, small slight sell off today that catches our attention. Is is this a a re-rating or is this a yield reaction story? Well, you know, this is going to be – I I would say neither, actually, because I think this is where – and you guys
5: are going to hate me for saying this. But (laughs) it's a little technical. Brace yourselves. Let me explain why. Because you do start to see these tiny pullbacks. One of the main themes of 2021 has been that there's been this major rally and no major corrections. Instead, you see these very shallow pullbacks, 2 3% drops, usually led by big tech. And I think that's what you're seeing right now because in the past – I'm looking at a chart here, two months. you do start to see that tech was outperforming with this EV boom, with this uh, semis boom. So tech was kind of a big part of that trade in the last two months. and now it's taking a breather because for two reasons. one, it's found that big kind of jump in yields that we talked about uh, about yesterday, a ten basis point move in today, which though so you we do see that yield sensitivity coming back. But you also have, us going into the holiday period where you are going to see a little less volume, a little less cash on the table. And I think that's really what markets are preparing for here. And they're just doing that through tech in a very normal reaction that you've seen this year, which is those shallow pullbacks.
0: And it's interesting. We've seen earnings come through, you know, generally very, very well across uh, the S&P 500, but particularly in tech. But again, it just seems, I think, as you mentioned, Kriti, Investors are trying to get a sense of, boy, the next 6 to 12 months, how, you know, how positive can I be about earnings, about top-line growth?
5: Yeah, well, this is a conversation that we had in 2020, right? This idea that in 2021, it's going to be all about the recovery trade and how you really compare yourself year over year – to the depths of 2020 every all the numbers were going to be good because your comparisons were to 2020 2022 uh in the next especially year the next six to 12 months is going to be a completely different story because now those comparisons aren't going to be to 2020 you don't have that kind of extra leeway the extra slack there instead they're going to be compared to how much progress have these companies made relative to 2019 we're talking about oil prices for example today we're talking about energy stocks so we're talking about their capacity and still when you look at the production levels or you look at their revenue streams, they're not anywhere near what they were in 2019 they're also in terms of what values they're trading at they're still not at 2019 and there's all those kind of questions that you're going to start to see whether it's tech whether it's semis whether it's your industrial companies whether or not they're actually making that progress that we really want them to
0: Hey, Critty, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate, as always, getting your thoughts on these markets. You know, Tell, I'm looking at a chart of the two-year Treasury. Back in June, the two-year was trading about 15 basis points. Here mm-hmm. we are today mm-hmm. at 61 basis points. It seems That's like, like, the, like market's, two rate hikes. the market's already doing its job. Uh, let's see kind of how the Fed should react. Um, Priya Misra. Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities, Priya, is the Fed kind of falling behind the market at all here?
6: So we think that the Fed threshold to either accelerate taper or hike as soon as priced in. I think the the threshold is much higher than what the market's pricing in. But to your question, I think the market is pricing in an economic outlook and a Fed response to that outlook. And I think the economic outlook that the market is pricing in is that inflation remains a problem and that the labor market shows signs of being tight, much more tight than we think it is, which will sort of force the Fed's hand. And that's why we've moved the timing of the first hike now, which just a month ago you were talking about where the, the two year was. We we're pricing in end of 22 to now June 22, first hike, and more than three hikes in the first year of the hiking cycle. So it's a normal start to the hiking cycle. It's the timing that I struggle with. And I also struggle with the end point, because the market's saying, well, they'll start really early. But it after the first few hikes, the hiking cycle will sort of abort because its impact, you know, long-term growth is, is lower. And so I struggle with the start and the end. But the market, I think, is pricing in that the Fed will be forced in sooner than what they're indicating right now.
2: And is that um, perhaps maybe confusion or uncertainty about the start, the pace, and the end? Is that what a yield curve on the twos tens at just around 100 basis points is telling you?
6: Right, yes. I think so. It's not as steep as you normally would expect that two stents curve because the end point is much lower than historically heading into a hiking cycle. In fact, what we noticed in the last two cycles was as we were getting closer to the end point, the market, or, or to the start of the hiking cycle, the market was moving the end point higher. And that's just not happening this time because there are pretty big questions, I think, among investors' minds as to the structural impact of COVID. Has COVID slowed down productivity or is it impacting long-term growth? And so the Fed, the, the assumption is that the Fed might be forced to start hiking because of inflation, but they won't be able to hike too much. So the we're estimating the endpoint of the hiking cycle that the market is pricing in at less than one and three quarters. So that's a very short hiking cycle if the market is right. But ultimately, yes, that's what's impacting that curve where those long-end rates are not able to rise. Because if the end point of the hiking cycle is only one and a half, then there's a limit to how high that two year can go. But I disagree with that. I think the Fed is going to try and let the economy run hot to get all the people back into or a large number of people who've left the labor force back in. And so if they start a little bit late, I think they can go much more. And so we think that the end point price should be closer to two and a half, which is where it was in the last
0: cycle. So Priya, if if the labor force and labor participation is one of the variables that the Fed is looking at, what do you make of the argument that people, a sizable portion of of the people that have left, they're not coming back? How do you think about the labor market?
6: So I think that's the big question, right? Are they not coming back forever, or are they being uh, picky about the type of job or what we call the reservation wage? At what wage level do they come back? I think the savings, high level of savings, partly because we had the fiscal transfers, partly because spending on services was just, even if you wanted to spend, you couldn't spend it last year. And that's provided, I think, a lot of people in the labor market a cushion to wait for a a, uh, a better job or, or higher wages. But how long does that cushion last? We know the fiscal transfers are running out or they've already run out. So in the next six months, we think a lot of people might be forced back in into the labor force. And that will indicate to the Fed that there is hidden slack in the labor market. Now, if they're actually not coming back because COVID was such a big change that you know they will you know, sort of not come back or they'll retire I think then that has implications for how tight the labor market is, and that has implications for wage inflation. And I think inflation is not a big problem, price inflation, if you have wage inflation. What we think is likely to happen is the price inflation remains high, but wage inflation starts to decline. That's when it starts to impact growth, and the Fed will want to be very careful not to add to the problem by raising rates. So, yeah, I think that you've hit the key question, which is, How quickly do these people come back and do they come back? And our view is that over time, as savings come off, that they will come back to the labor market.
2: How are you thinking about very negative real yields? You're still at negative 95 on the 10-year, negative 167 on the 30-year. Is that speaking to some of these loose financial conditions? and, And why aren't we seeing bigger movement in real yields?
6: Absolutely. I think uh, in the long end, that is what is puzzling. When I look at our forecasts, uh, we are projecting a decent rise in those 10-year real rates. Um, you know, by the end of next year. And absolutely, I think the fact that real rates are that negative is why the repricing in the rates market has not had an impact really, even to the dollar, to the dollar or broader financial conditions, is because real rates ultimately impact financial conditions and the economy. Now, why are they here, you ask? I would think a lot of that has to do with the Fed QE program. They're still, I mean, they've started to taper, but it's a slow taper, Um, The the Fed has been taking out a lot of duration from the market, and we know that savings is high. So there's just a lot of demand for duration. But that is set to change next year, where the Fed stops buying. By the middle of next year, the Fed is not buying any treasuries. And globally, rates are rising. And so I think some of that demand for treasuries, for long-dated treasuries that have kept these real rates that low, that starts to ebb away. And that's going to take, I don't think, positive, but we do have a 50 basis point rise in 10-year real rates by the end of next year. And that's what then starts to impact financial conditions and actually becomes self-limiting for how high 10-year nominal rates can go as well, because those real rates then really start to bite.
0: Priya Misra, thank you so much for joining us. We always, always, always appreciate getting your thoughts and opinions on rates. Priya Misra, Managing Director